0: Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe.
1: And I'm Brenna.
0: And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishnabe, on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase, Treaty 13 of 1805
1: and on the Tecumloops Tay Sweetmac territory within the unceded traditional lands of Swetmikulu. And today's text, uh, Twilight, is set in Forks, Washington State, which is the traditional home of the Quileute people. And we will be talking a lot about the way Stephanie Myers makes use of the Quileute people in this book and series. Because uh-huh. it's... Not good. <laughs> Like a
0: lot of things in this text, it's not well done. It's not well Honestly, done. Honestly, reading it, I was like, "Oh, she's treating Indigenous people the way that she treats vampires—like mm-hmm. they are mystical things that she can't be bothered to do any homework about, and they serve only to advance a romance plot."
1: Yeah, I really do want to say off the top while we're doing our territorial acknowledgement, the Quileute are a people, a real people. Um, mm-hmm. They currently number approximately 2,000. They're a federally recognized tribe in the United States. They were forced onto the Quileute Indian Reservation in 1855. And that reservation, the main population center is Lapush, which obviously makes an appearance in Twilight. And uh, I think it's really important to remember because Stephanie Meyer sure doesn't. <laughs> that the Quileute are real people with real mm-hmm. history and yep. real religion and real mythology, and just mining it for things that are useful to you is not actually how respectful intercultural integration works. No.
0: No. No. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about it in mm. greater detail in a bit. I do feel like we maybe need to start with a bit of a caveat on this episode. Ugh. We held off on talking about Twilight for quite some time, if only because as much as people talk about how much they like when we do hate episodes, we don't always love to do it.
1: It's not super fun to spend 400 pages and then two hours immersed in something that makes you...
0: Real, real angry.
1: Yeah, angry and uncomfortable and... We want to understand why this series is successful. This to me is not, it's not an after. It's not a kissing booth. It's not something that exists as kind of like a cultural footnote. This has had a tremendous impact on our culture. Yeah. I would argue in many ways for the negative, And we want mm. to take that seriously. It's exhausting, frankly.
0: It is. It's challenging because we want to acknowledge that the only reason that this has become such a popular phenomenon is because there are a lot of people who genuinely like both the book and the films. Mm -hmm. And we don't ever want to diminish people for liking something because you know what, that's your prerogative. Like Mm -hmm. you're allowed to like things even if other people don't. Mm -hmm. But also, these are texts that it can be argued has some major freaking problems. Yes. And I don't know. I mean, to a certain extent, I'm, I'm wary of ascribing blame for real things on a lighthearted romance between a human girl and a vampire. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that when texts reach a certain cultural popularity, their influence is undeniable. Mm-hmm. This book did change the world and in some ways it didn't change it for the better Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and that's what we got to talk about we're going to try hard to do it respectfully (laughs) of the people who do care a great deal about this text what i don't have a lot of time for are folks who are like it's just silly fun it's just some fluff Mm -hmm. like no
0: Mm -mm. as
1: a culture we decided to elevate this book far beyond it's just a little bit of silly fluff so we're going to take seriously the way stephanie meyer deals with gender the way mm-hmm. she deals with power, the way she mm-hmm. deals with her her representation of indigenous people, and the way she infuses her own Religion? religious and philosophical beliefs yeah. into the text. We're gonna take all that really seriously today. So we're also gonna make fun of it, probably. <laughs> Fair amount.
0: We're not gonna get out of this scot-free. Come no, on. <laughs>
1: why not? Um, because guess what? Like the book is objectively not very well written. And
0: No, and I feel like even she acknowledges that. <laughs>
1: yes. Yep.
0: She talks about herself as she's not a writer. She's a storyteller. And sometimes she doesn't get all the words right. That's a near verbatim quote from an article in Time magazine.
1: She's also someone who has capitalized on this story to death. Like I didn't realize there's a gender flip version of this story called Life and Death.
0: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: I didn't realize. I mean, I knew all the controversy about Midnight Sun and not releasing it (laughs) and then releasing it. I know that this is a series that basically has only had the same power it has had because of its fandom, and yet the kind of disdain that Stephanie Meyer has expressed for her fandom. Like, there's all kinds of stuff here. Yeah. Let's get into it, I guess.
0: Let's get into it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Bretta, for those people who don't know, what is Twilight about?
1: Hell's bells. Okay.
0: (laughs) I mean, really, you could probably do this justice in a couple of sentences.
1: (laughs) I'm going to try. I'm going to try because we've got so much more interesting things to talk about than the book itself. Well, and really, let's be
0: honest, this book is very light on plot.
1: Oh my god. Nothing happens for the first 300 pages.
0: Mm And then we get a baseball game and then we get a ballet school fight.
1: Yes, that's basically it. Okay, well, the plot's (laughs) done. No, okay, so... (laughs) Our protagonist is Bella Swan. Don't call her Isabella. Her name is Bella. Very Bella. She's a 17 year old girl. She grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, but she has moved to Forks, Washington because I don't know, her mom is really kind of crappy at being a mom.
0: Yeah, her mom is basically like, I like this guy and he wants to travel because he's an aspiring baseball player. And Bella's like, cool, I'll take the bullet. I'm gonna go live with dad.
1: (laughs) It's a very weird family dynamic. It's an
0: odd setup, too.
1: We don't unpack it at all, right? Oh, no. no. no, At all. So she goes to live with her dad in Forks, which is apparently the rainiest place in North America.
0: hmm That's important.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's important. So on the first day of school, she's immediately extremely popular with everyone. It's great. But she's super hot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's really, really hot. Yes, that's important.
0: I mean, she doesn't think so, though.
1: No, of course. If she thought so, we wouldn't be allowed to like her. <laughs>
0: <laughs> very
1: traditional gender politics here.
0: It really is. Yeah. So she she was kind of like a nothing when she lived in Phoenix. And then she comes to Forks and she's immediately the talk of the town. And part of this is that the book does make some slight effort to acknowledge that this is a very small town mm-hmm. that has a lot of intergenerational memory. So mm-hmm. like people don't really move to Forks. People just live there and produce successive generations so when she shows up everybody's like oh right we remember you from the two weeks that you've been here in the summers but also hey new girl you're hot you want to date
1: and very literally from the perspective of the local vampires fresh blood right yeah so there is only one person at school who doesn't love her immediately and that of course is the boy she must get to know better Mm -hmm, (laughs) that is mm -hmm. edward cullen who i don't know spoiler alert is a vampire
0: he's so pretty though I can't stop looking at him.
1: Yeah, she can't stop looking at him. He can't stop seething at her. And the smell of her makes him look like he wants to vomit. So obviously, Mm -hmm. she really wants to get to know him better. Like, obviously, (laughs) the very polite and sweet Mike Newton is just a pile of garbage in comparison to this guy.
0: Ew, why would you want a Mike Newton when you could have an (laughs) Edward Cullen?
1: I'm on, you know, there's Team Edward and Team Jacob. I'm on Team Age Appropriate Romance. (laughs)
0: Right. I'm on Team Bella, in which Bella needs to, like, learn to love herself and not look for men to give her self-worth.
1: There can't be a Team Bella because it's, like, just, like, team, just a sound of a vacuum sucking.
0: (laughs) It's team falling over everything (laughs) because you can't walk.
1: (laughs) Okay, I texted this to Joe last week. I was like, if my child fell down every time they stood up, I would take them to see an inner ear doctor to make sure everything was okay.
0: Yeah. Has anyone checked to see if Bella's okay? Like, (laughs) why can't she put one foot in front of the other? Ah,
1: Okay. All this to say. Obviously, she's immediately curious about Edward. Uh, She discovers that he is a vampire and he's Mm -hmm. never been any more attracted to anyone than her in the history of his life. Their relationship gets somewhat complicated by the fact that Jacob Black, a local boy from the Quilouette tribe, basically tells her that Edward and his family are vampires.
0: Yeah, and that <laughs> she can't trust him.
1: And that their community has, quote unquote, made treaty. I read a really interesting Mm. essay by Debbie Reese about the misunderstanding of the concept of treaty that this represents, because... It's
0: not an agreement.
1: No, treaties are (laughs) made between sovereign heads of government. So if you're calling this a treaty, then you're elevating the Cullens to like a sovereign nation. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting article. Anyway, all this to say, they go play baseball, which attracts other vampires, obviously, and... This one vampire decides that he needs to eat Bella because Edward likes her. The details here are really slim. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to lie. Particularly in the film where it's like <laughs> yes. two hot boys just staring each other down. And you're like, am I not supposed to see a little queerity here?
1: Oh, it's it's like the classic Eve Sedgwick. What does she call it? The, homoso- the homosocial triangle? The triangulation of desire, right? It's mm-hmm. like Bella is a convenient... <laughs> third prong on that triangle
0: yeah bella get behind me get real real far behind me. like just bella just go out of sight <laughs> james and i are gonna take care of this wink wink nudge nudge
1: anyway so all this to say they end up like you do in a ballet studio mm-hmm. the vampires kill james who's the vampire who wants to kill bella they burn it down they lie to bella's family and say that she fell down two flights of stairs and out a window and that's oh, why she goodness. has all of these wild injuries
0: Yeah, like broken ribs and a broken leg and (laughs) a bite mark on her arm.
1: Her parents say that's cool. Totally makes sense to us. They go back to Forks. Edward takes her to prom and she's super disappointed because she thought they were getting married. And see. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. And that is book one. (laughs) We don't even really get into the Team Jacob versus Team Edward stuff. No,
1: because he's just a baby in this book, right? He's like 14. He doesn't get hot until book two is my understanding.
0: Correct. Yes. For that, I was thankful because I remember just absolutely hating the team versus team crap that evolves out of this. So Mm -hmm. we don't have to talk about that just yet.
1: Yay. Yay. Just yet. We're just Uh, doing this one book, right, Joe?
0: As I promised, if this episode does well, people will get more (gasps) Twilight. You want it? You got to recommend the podcast to other people. So leave us a damn rating and review. Nobody's done it in a while. Come on.
1: It's because we literally never mention it, but we really do love it when you rate and review us. Mm -hmm. on the podcast of your choice but ideally itunes because those are the ones that
0: matter yeah exactly (laughs) okay so brenna
1: this book sucks
0: why does this book suck
1: okay so it (laughs) sucks for a number of reasons first of all the writing is extremely boring
0: oh boy do you ever feel like she has about five words in her vocabulary
1: joe texted me a picture of a page where she uses the word mad like what nine times on a single page
0: just egregious yeah
1: it's very repetitive and it's incredibly slow i think for me trying to read it to deadline for the podcast the fact that it is slow so slow was its unforgivable sin okay
0: Have you ever experienced this period like, I'm going to do this thing, and then you suddenly find yourself doing other things? Yes. And you don't know how you got from one to the other? Yes. This was me. It was like, oh, I don't like the song on Spotify, so I'm just going to change it. And I'd come back to the book 25 minutes later, because this book could (laughs) not keep my
1: attention. It's so boring. So that's the first, I think, fatal sin of this book. If you don't identify with Bella, like if Mm. if you aren't putting yourself in the position of being Bella... There is nothing here for you. And so that's my first frustration. Right. My second massive frustration is this book is deeply misogynistic. Like, Mm -hmm. I really just fundamentally believe that at the baseline level, Bella can't do anything. No. And Edward refuses to listen to her about anything. And Bella Mm -hmm. is just basically moves from being looked after. Like... We're told that the reason she's moved to Forks is, at least in part, because her mother is so flighty. And on some level, she seems to want to get to be a kid, which is a trope that we've seen time and time again, right? Sure. But instead of seeing that actually get enacted in the book... What we see instead is a character who goes from being looked after by Charlie, right? Like he secretly changes her tires in the night so that she's safe driving. (laughs) Yeah,
0: but she also fixes him dinner every night and like cleans up the house. So I honestly read it more like they're a married couple than father and daughter. And it's uncomfortable
1: one of the reasons why the book has been so popular with not just Mormon, but with many religious communities where it hasn't been... I mean, there's basically two religious reactions to this book, right? Like one is to mm-hmm. elevate it and one is to try to get it banned.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. It's either uh, laud it or burn it.
1: But the people who laud it, laud it because it is in many ways a celebration of female Abstinence. domesticity. Oh, as okay. well, yes. Yeah, absence for sure. But like <laughs> everything that's good about Bella is domestic, right? Yes. Yeah. She's a perfectly fine student, but nobody celebrates her for her brains. Oh, no. What's special about her is, yeah, she cooks for her dad, and she passively waits to be told what to do by the menfolk. And mm-hmm. she's and delicate. She's pretty, but and not fragile. threatening. Yes, 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 yes. All of these things, I find just really troubling and It's one thing to read 200 pages of that. It's quite another to read 400 pages of that. Mm -hmm. I was absolutely exhausted by the gender dynamics of this book by the end of it and increasingly just filled with rage. You know, there's moment after moment after moment in the text where Bella asks for basic, I don't know, consideration. Like Mm -hmm. she just wants to be listened to, she just wants Edward to take her perspective into account and he's mm-hmm. incapable of doing it. He also constantly gaslights her even as she's oh, yeah. figuring things out and I I don't understand why he's attractive. I just don't.
0: Yes, I anticipated that we might have this issue because really <laughs> this is the same gender dynamic that we've experienced in things like the kissing booth and after,
1: right? And discovery of witches, right? It's also the discovery mm-hmm. of witches gender dynamic. It's the yeah. I am constantly in danger and I'm hot about it? Yes.
0: Yeah, the, the danger equals romance, mm-hmm. but also a man telling you what to do because you're quote unquote not smart enough or Ooh. your opinions are not valid. Mm-hmm. and. I think it gets elevated in things like a discovery of witches and folks go back, listen to that episode as well. I think it gets elevated in things that have a supernatural genre bent because you can make the argument, I'm doing scary air quotes right now, (laughs) that because these men have lived longer, Mm -hmm. they're therefore more of an authority. So it's like these stupid human women barely even know how to function in the world. Whereas these men have lived through millennia, so they know so much better. I'm sorry, I'm being so dismissive, but it's just, it's one of those really aggravating things Mm -hmm. when you read this book, because it's like, why does Edward know better? And it's partially because he's freaking gaslighting her. So he's not giving her all the information and then telling her, oh, you're such a stupid little girl. And then also, he's unwilling to listen to her because she's a stupid little girl. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I'm a man, I know better. I'm smart. I've lived forever.
1: Well, that's the thing. When you have a story like this, you inherently have a power differential that needs to be either embraced, which is what this book and what in many ways Discovery of Witches, at least the first one, Mm -hmm. does, or you have to overcome it somehow. And probably the only insightful comment Bella makes in the entire book is she does recognize that, right? Her desire to be turned into a vampire is because, well, it's twofold. It's one, we're all very terrified of women getting old in this mm-hmm. book series. Hey, like,
0: ew, ew.
1: Yeah. Uh, what is Esme's like? Twenty four when she turns, and she's the oldest of them all. Like,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, because all the rest of them are teenagers.
1: We don't want women getting old. They very gross when they get old. So and so, in many ways, Bella very probably correctly <laughs> fears <laughs> aging out of being interesting to Edward. Right. Like. There's absolutely no reason to believe from anything we see in the narrative that Edward will still be interested in her when she's 42. (laughs) Uh,
0: Brenna, I think you're overlooking the fact that she smells real, real
1: good. Smells real good. Yeah. Well, menopause will really put a pin in that. (laughs) (laughs) And then the other issue is she can never be his equal as long as she's mortal. And it's like Mm -hmm. her only insight in the whole book is that she recognizes that. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I don't know, I guess I just don't like anything about it. I don't know where I was going with that, but that's where I ended
0: up. Well, and maybe this is the point where we should introduce a counterpoint. So there's a great Vox article that we'll link to in the show notes. (laughs) Brenna. (laughs) So this was like a roundtable piece that Vox did on the 10-year anniversary of the film. So one of the participants, Eleanor Barkhorn, says... I never fully understood all the hand-wringing about whether Twilight was, quote-unquote, good for women, or whether Bella was a, quote-unquote, good role model for girls. Pop culture doesn't need to be instructive to be good. It can simply show people as they are, rather than as they should be, end quote. And I thought it was important to acknowledge this, even though I don't implicitly agree with it, if only because one of the arguments that people can make about Twilight as a property is that Bella isn't necessarily a stand-in for all women, right? She is an individual character. She is a teenage girl who is infatuated with the first boy that she has truly ever had feelings for. Mm -hmm. So she acts a little irrationally. She Mm -hmm. is all consumed by her thoughts for him. And I think that that is something that, you know, a lot of people feel the first time that they fall in love. Now, obviously, we can quibble with whether or not this is actually love or whether this is infatuation and whether that demarcation needs to be made. I mean, again, I think the issue is that when Twilight becomes such a massive success and millions of people are watching this or reading this, Bella ceases to become just an individual character, and she does start to become a proxy for a whole generation of women.
1: This is the thing, right? It's not just about the fact that... Yes, we can have frivolous tales for women. We certainly do have mm-hmm. many. And it's not that we have to have a moral center in every book we read. That's, right. I don't think, an argument that either of us would ever make. No. But.
0: <laughs> and it's a big but. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's a difference between, quote unquote, depicting teenagers as they truly are and celebrating what is ultimately a wildly dangerous relationship dynamic. Mm-hmm. And elevating it to the status where, like, people have Edward and Bella themed weddings mm-hmm. for yep. sake. Like, that's <laughs> not, that's not, uh, depicting people as they are or letting kids be kids. That's celebrating a relationship dynamic that is exclusively abusive and that exists right. only under the threat of violence. I, I just refuse to accept that we can't do better, right? That depicting teenagers, quote unquote, as they are, has to ultimately be the most damaged and damaging vision of teenage life. I just Mm -hmm. don't, I don't buy it as an argument. And I'm also really struggling with the idea that these are the stories that break huge, right? These are the stories that become the centerpiece of culture for like a decade decade and a half right we had to do the Bella Edward Jacob triangle thing and at no point in that conversation do we ask and I mean this culturally at no point in this that conversation do we ask like why are these the stories that we want to sell to teenage girls and why are these the stories that are successful (laughs) ultimately what Bella sells to teenage girls is passivity troubled power dynamics We've got a, a teenage girl who really conveniently can't call on either parent for help or support in her darkest moments. Right? So she's left prey to a much, 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 much older man.
0: Yep. <laughs> and it becomes okay because he looks like a 17 year old boy.
1: Yes, which again, is so troubling. <laughs> is very troubling, right? So much of this book is about looks. She trusts him because he's beautiful. She mm-hmm. believes he won't hurt her because he's beautiful
0: yeah like what
1: he's willing to put his entire family at risk because she's beautiful, like mm-hmm. its yeah,
0: yeah, no, yeah, Hate I it. mean <laughs> it's just so hard, right? because i I completely agree with you that Bella shouldn't be made to stand in for all women, and she should be allowed to be flighty or flawed or you know have characteristics that we don't necessarily want people to embody because she's a character mm-hmm. and the issue that i have is that there's that element but then there is also this abusive element that mm-hmm. you identified right so this idea that true love is now synonymous with somebody crawling in through your window and watching you sleep at night Mm -hmm. or someone telling you no I'm going to control who you can talk to and who you can see and what you can do and I'm going to pick you up in my car and you're not going to drive yourself because you suck Mm -hmm. and like I get it it's a plot it's a narrative construction romance novels are filled with these kinds of ideas like not exclusively but there is a lot of romance novels where it's like women want to be swept away by a man Mm -hmm. who commands their attention who tells them what they should do and takes care of them Mm -hmm. we know this but there's also damaging effects to be taken from that and when this story is consumed by teenage girls and gets made into five massive movies there's something to be said for holding it in part responsible for the way that women might look at romance and relationships. And this is abuse.
1: Yes, yes. It's not sort of abuse. It's not gently abusive. It's abuse. Everything that Bella experiences in her dynamic with Edward is designed for her to be unable to resist He's not particularly interested in consent conceptually. He controls her movements and her behavior. He isolates her from her friends. Mm -hmm. He has her keep secrets from her family. It's all very classic. And to have it packaged as romance, I don't understand any way of reading this book that isn't deeply troubled by that. And let's be real. Like we can talk about it as, well, it's just a story or it's just a book, but we've seen the cultural phenomenon that this relationship dynamic has become, right? Mm -hmm. Like, let's just look to 50 shades of gray for an example of what happens when your Mormon romance doesn't have any sex in it. So you've got to get somebody to rewrite the story and make it real, real dirty. Like (laughs) that becomes an even more explicitly violent revisioning, of the relationship in a way that is hugely troublingly palatable to people
0: yeah 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 and i think one of the things that frustrates me is how people don't see the violence that is inherent in the abuse mm-hmm. because they talk about how chaste this book right. is and how it's all about abstinence yeah. And I'm like, it's both of those things, and those both have damaging effects. Like, yeah. Brenna, talk to me about the Mormonism in this book.
1: Oh, wow. So I was reading an essay this morning called Bella as a Mormon Goddess in Twilight.
0: Wow. Oh, wow. Wow.
1: Yes. <laughs> so that's an essay from a blog called The Hooded Utilitarian. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. Good. And it's written by a woman named Medi Ivy Harrison, who is a writer. She publishes with Soho Publishing, and she writes Mormon thriller slash murder mysteries.
0: Okay, that seems a little antithetical. but
1: <laughs> It's interesting. When I, many years ago now, well, they canceled it. It doesn't exist anymore. But many years ago now, I went to BookCon in New York and I picked up Medi-Ivy Harrison's first book there and I really okay. actually enjoyed it it was sort of the same way sometimes an Amish romance is a bit of a thrill right? It's just an okay. entirely different world right. worldview right? Right, okay but then I picked up her second book and it's really turfy, real transphobic real oh, real fast so fantastic, okay I have since jettisoned to Medi-Ivy Harrison as, yeah. as somebody who's books I read. But when I found this essay, because I know about her own history with the church, which is that she considers herself an atypical Mormon, a progressive Mormon. Okay. She herself is a career woman. She had for some time left the church and come back to it. So in many ways, she's antithetical to some of the gender dynamics of Mormonism and also to... gender dynamics of stephanie meyer herself right mm-hmm. stephanie meyer very famously intended to go to law school but when she had her son she couldn't imagine a life outside of the home that didn't involve centering him and she gave up any idea that she would work outside of the home at that point so in many ways the ways in which bella structures her life quite mm-hmm. passively along gender dynamics makes sense when you yes. when you read what stephanie meyer has said about her own life and her own perspective
0: Yeah. And just in case it needs to be said, we're not saying that it's not okay to be Mormon or to uphold values that puts the family first and foremost over maybe personal or professional needs. We're simply saying that this is an inherent element of the Twilight series. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of people who read it, even without thinking about how the religious implications of of stephanie meyer's life have informed that text and what it's saying to readers
1: yeah totally and it's you know I no no qualms with folks who stay home to parent their children it's really an important it's an important thing to do yeah, and, and it's a job parent children yes but it's the idea the way she phrases it in interviews that staying home with her children was this higher moral calling than anything right. else she could have done with her life that's that's where i take issue right Yeah, there's a judgmental tone that creeps into some of these interviews, isn't there? Yeah, there's a moralization around her own personal choices. And Mm -hmm. by extension, the choices that Bella has access to in the books, right? Yep. So this essay I found really, really interesting, because it's arguing that that apple on the cover of the first Twilight book, Mm -hmm. nobody ever mentions the apple in the book, right? But it's Mm -hmm. that iconic image. Mm hmm. And Harrison is arguing in this essay that that's actually central because it's signaling to the reader that this story is a reflection or a rewriting of the Mormon version of the Garden of Eden story. And I didn't know a whole bunch of this history. So I went down a whole big Wikipedia rabbit hole about,
0: (laughs) about Mormons
1: and original sin. Okay. So Mormons don't believe in original sin. They believe that Adam and Eve made a transgression in the Garden of Eden rather than a sin Okay. And why is that that important? Well, it's important because they took the fruit knowing, and this is Harrison's words, knowing that it would make them mortal and send them out of God's presence and into the world. They broke a law, but it was a law they had to break. And so Mm -hmm. it's this idea that Eve is not then a figure of hatred or blame in Mormonism. She makes a decision because she can see more clearly the joy that is available to us in life when we also experience pain. Okay. Okay. I'm interested in that because to me, that's a heck of a lot of agency that I don't see reflected in other aspects of Mormon scripture for women. But she argues that, and she's not the only one, she quotes some scholars here. She talks about how the importance of free will and agency in Mormon doctrine is embodied in Bella's desire to be made equal to Edward, right? Mm. She wants to be godlike the way he is. Okay. Okay. In that way, she's she's sort of seeking the knowledge that Eve sought in the garden, right? In order to have this other kind of life. <sighs> Here's where I think it all comes down. So I read this essay and I read the whole thing and it was all about how like Bella's power comes from a Mormon perspective where the female and the divine power is separate, right? So in the first book, she can't make herself a vampire because her role is more important She has Hmm. to maintain the moral center so that Edward has a reason to not descend into monstrousness.
0: Okay. Interesting. Yes. I don't know that I would have gone there myself, but okay.
1: And so she says this quote, Bella takes up the Mormon role of motherhood to become the divine path to birth and life on earth. A role is important to Mormon priesthood, which rules over death and the final approach to immortality. It's a scriptural idea in Mormonism, right? That although it may look to an outsider like women have the lesser role, in fact, their role is equal in sort of larger importance. It just is different expression of agency to be the moral center of the home as opposed to the public facing priest head of the family, right? Okay. That sounds okay, I
0: guess. That's just kind of like a recontextualizing of something that maybe people outside of that religious order hadn't really thought.
1: Yes. And so Harrison argues that that's why Twilight has to glorify the traditional female role of wife and mother and express the power within those roles. Mm -hmm. I guess for me, where the argument falls apart, at least in the first book, and I have never read farther than the first book. Oh, bless you. <laughs> where, the, where the argument falls apart is that Bella's power simply isn't equal to Edward's. No, not at all. Bella isn't the reason why Edward rejects monstrousness. Carlisle is the reason why Edward rejects monstrousness.
0: Yeah, it's so that he can fit in with his quote unquote traditional family.
1: If anything, she is the greatest danger Dreat. to yeah. his resistance to monstrousness, right? Because he mm-hmm. constantly wants to get all up on her and and the framing in the narrative i think it's really important that abstinence from sexual congress (laughs) with (laughs) bella for lack of a better word abstinence from sex is equated with abstinence from bella's destruction right like those two things are equal
0: yes to to consume would be to eradicate
1: yes and so he resists her sexually but he also resists her Vampirically, sure, (laughs) and those are the same thing. And to me, that's where everything falls apart because ultimately, if sex is not just about sort of a moral purity, but is actually about a bodily destruction for Mm -hmm. only one person in the relationship, then it's inherently not equal.
0: Yeah, there's literally a line in the text wherein. I think you're referencing that scene where they're kind of making out on her bed and then Mm -hmm. he has to stop and she's like, well, come on, let's just do a little bit more. And he's like, I would crush you. Yeah, You don't know how powerful, like I would be so overcome with desire that I could just like, you, like great. And that could be fine. Maybe if the text was willing to acknowledge it's Mormonism. Yes. Like if she was a Mormon, Yes. And he was a vampire and you wanted to have this storyline. I think a lot of this would make more sense, but it's not. It's just written by a Mormon and then it presents itself as, no, this is a love story for the ages.
1: I will say, and I I don't want it to sound like I think that Mormon readers by definition read these books uncritically, because I don't think that would be a fair claim.
0: we can say that.
1: I strongly recommend a blog called Feminist Mormon Housewives, by the way, <laughs> oh, interesting. because, yeah, there's some really great posts on there about the books. Well, here, this is a quote from Feminist Mormon Housewives. Okay. I find the message to young girls disturbing that love is an irresistible force that precludes any rational decisions, that it's okay or even noble to sacrifice your personal safety if you really love someone. Hmm. And there's a lot of commentary on those blogs, particularly because many of these women are women who are trying to enact a progressive politics within a fairly regressive social dynamic they are probably the most vocal like Mm -hmm. critics of something like twilight so i don't want it to sound like every reader is meddy ivy harrison and and trying to argue for a feminist discourse within what is ultimately wildly anti-feminist politics right i do think you're right joe to say that a clearer articulation of the philosophy behind the book is warranted here. Like, I want Bella to be more open with us as readers about why it is that she is apparently the most beautiful girl in the world, but has never looked at a boy before. And I want to understand more about her perspective on sex and sexuality, because I don't think it's clear, right? Like Bella is not choosing abstinence here. Edward is choosing it for her. So -hmm. what do we do with that when we're having a conversation about her agency and her sexuality, you know?
0: And it's very frustrating because the book is so unwilling to be critical about it because we are trapped in Bella's headspace and she is being uncritical about it, right? But also the book itself is unwilling to negotiate these kinds of important discussions because we never get a conversation with Bella and Jessica where Jessica says, hey, he seems really controlling. I haven't seen you in a week. And I think at this point maybe we should begin to transition over to the film, but one of the things that always strikes me, particularly about this first book, if you look at it as just a standalone, there's no other books to come, no other films. There are human characters who are introduced in this book that then completely disappear in the entire second half. Mm -hmm. And, like, what does the storyline look like when Bella disappears from town? Yes! For weeks at a time. Like, it's so bizarre to me that you would spend this time to introduce these characters and suggest, like, Bella might have a female friendship with Jessica or whatever the other girl's name is. Who could care?
1: Well, that's one of the great frustrations, right? On the one hand... We get the sense that Bella is lonely or is looking for someone to connect with, but Mm -hmm. all of Jessica's overtures of friendship are framed by Bella around the idea of jealousy, right? Like, Jessica only follows up with Bella because she wants to know what's happening with Mike because she likes Mike, right? Like, Mm -hmm. women exist in this series. Bella's mother Orbits Phil, the minor league ball player. Yes. Jessica orbits Mike. That other mm-hmm. girl orbits that other guy. I can't remember their names.
0: Tyler or Eric or somebody.
1: Something. <laughs> I think that was Eric. Generic
0: boy Eric. name. Eric.
1: But this is the whole thing, right? Like.
0: Yeah. And even the Cullens themselves, right? Yes. They're all partnered up.
1: Mm-hmm. Like the
0: ultimate end goal of all of this, it's not romance. No. It's marriage.
1: It's marriage. And let's take a look at that dynamic too, right? Do any of the Cullen women turn any of the men or are they all turned by men or discovered by them? I think the latter, yes?
0: We either don't know or it's men turning women.
1: Yes. So the agency, even as it's highly eroticized, is highly eroticized for men. Women Mm -hmm. are exclusively passive, And part of that, I guess, is what's supposed to make Bella so interesting is that she's actively pursuing the idea of becoming a vampire.
0: Sure. I mean, less so in this book, like it will ramp up in successive books to the nth degree. Right. But let's talk about the film because maybe we'll have some different opinions about it. Okay. Yes. And also I have to go pee. (laughs)
1: Leave that in. (laughs) You're impossibly fast and strong. You gotta give me some answers.
0: I'd rather hear your theories.
1: I have considered radioactive spiders and kryptonite. It's all superhero stuff, right? What if I'm not the hero? I wanna find the bad guy? You know what you are.
0: Your skin is pale white and ice cool. Don't go out into the sunlight. Say it out loud. Say it. Vampire. Are you afraid?
1: No. This isn't real. This kind of stuff just doesn't exist. Doesn't my world? I just want to
0: try one thing. I don't know how long I've waited for you. I mean, what is going on? Security guard
1: at the mill got killed by some kind of animal.
0: It's an animal.
1: My family—we're different from others of our kind
0: you brought a snack
1: what now he's coming after me
0: the hunt is his obsession he's never gonna stop
1: i'd rather die than stay away from you
0: okay so the film is from 2008 so there's about a three year gap in between the release of the book and the film it languished in development hell for a while because they couldn't get the script right
1: oh wow they totally nailed it eventually
0: that wow. <laughs> well, makes you wonder like what was in those other scripts that they <laughs> felt like they couldn't crack it <laughs> in any case uh apparently melissa rosenberg screenwriter ended up with that job it is directed by Catherine hardwick who is coming off of the movie 13 which is honestly a legitimately great film about female sexuality and agency oh. and, like, some of the tricky dynamics of being sexually active, a uh, legitimately good film. Maybe something a little bit more where you're like,
1: yay, Catherine Hardwick! <laughs> well, it wasn't hampered by the source material, I would imagine.
0: Well, she she co-wrote it with an actual 13-year-old, who oh. is Nikki Reed, who is uh, Rosalie in this
1: film. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Rosalie's the only vampire I like, by the way, because she's the one who's like, why are we doing all this? What the, who is this bland girl who we're now risking our lives for? What is happening? Uh, does anybody else want to talk about how she's not worth it? No?
0: No? <laughs> just me? Okay. I'm just going to smash this vase or this salad bowl. <laughs> okay. So, Twilight is obviously envisioned as a franchise because by this point, we've had successive books. It's become a cultural phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It's produced by Summit Entertainment, which is not a big studio. So they gave this film a budget of $37 million, which is, I mean, when you look at the finished product, a lot of people quibble with the special effects and that kind of stuff. If you look at the budget... For what the film is, it's actually not a ton. I mean, 37 is no small amount of change, but like compared to the 78 million that they gave the first Hunger Games film, compared to the 125 that they gave to the first Harry Potter, Mm -hmm. in terms of franchise, this was a pretty low low investment from summit and Catherine Hardwick director has actually gone on the record as being like, yeah, you know, I had to make a lot of concessions about what I could do because they just wouldn't give me the budget to make this better. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, they knew what they were doing because they knew that this was a guaranteed hit regardless. And they were right because it grosses $192 million in North America and 393 worldwide. Now, if you look at the comparisons to something like the Hunger Games and Harry Potter, that's minimum 300 to $600 million less worldwide. So this is huge. It's also not in the same ballgame as these other massive franchises. But I would argue that this is the hardest sell of the three.
1: Well, I was going to say, do you not think that Twilight is inherently an American story? the particular perspective on the hypersexualization of chastity, like I just think there are a bunch of f- nuggets here that are of particular attraction to the particular American cultural psychosis around sexuality that I'm not sure is the same kind of cell internationally. I mean,
0: it's interesting that you say that because the film does do better internationally than it did domestically. Mm. But I think part of that is also because they can lean on the genre tropes, which Mm -hmm. is something that we haven't really talked about a lot. And I think they're quote-unquote amped up a little bit more in the film because Mm. you actually get to see the vampires in motion. So you can see the feats of strength. You can actually see you know, there's whole sequences of Edward throwing Bella onto his back, climbing up a tree, and then jumping between trees. It doesn't look good, but if you're into the genre elements, you're interested in the vampire text, then it's there.
1: Like the traditional vampire trope of the sparkling? Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, that that (laughs) age-old... What?
1: I like how even I, who know nothing about anything, was like, I don't think that's what they're supposed to do.
0: <laughs> well, bear in mind, this is the genesis of all of this, is that Stephanie Meyer had a dream in which a girl sees a sparkling boy in a meadow. That's where it all came from, folks. Oh, wow.
1: Okay, suddenly it literally all makes sense to me. Okay.
0: Right? Cool. Mm-hmm. And ooh, then ooh. she imbues Bella with all the characteristics of herself.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I'm reading a book right now and I'm not going to tell you any details about it, except the title is The Cure for White
0: Ladies.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like. Anyway, okay, just go on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. My constant refrain is like, I need fewer stories about white people because we're so boring.
1: (laughs) We can sparkle. Then we sparkle. Yay.
0: So, obviously, the big thing about this film is, in a way, it launches the careers, for better or worse, of Kirsten Stewart as Bella and Robert Pattinson mm-hmm. as Edward. So, this is before they get famous and other things. A lot of the folks in this movie ultimately also go on to have very successful careers in, you know, different capacities. But I sometimes forget when I watch the movie that all of these people have more or less become recognizable figures so Mm -hmm. i would say with the exception of the actor who plays jasper everybody else it's like oh yeah okay you could probably pick them out of a lineup Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well maybe not nikki reed either if we're being honest (laughs) the film doesn't do well Critically, amusingly enough, there were a couple of people who said that it's lost something in the translation to the screen from the book, to which I say, you need to read the book. Yeah. For me, the
1: film is actually a step up. Oh, it's a huge step up. I still didn't like it. (laughs) No. But, you know, Kristen Stewart imbues... Bella with so much humanity that is completely lacking in the book. I still don't love all the choices that she makes. And I don't love the source material for the character. Right. But I feel like you get these moments where she, whether it's like a very small eyebrow raise or sort of a look of disbelief at Mm -hmm. what Edward's doing. Likewise, because there's such good chemistry between the two of them. Yeah. Edward often is sort of softened in his approach from the book. Mm hmm. I really appreciated that. The relationship feels a lot less dangerous somehow, even while you're seeing some of the most dangerous moments enacted Mm
0: -hmm. on the screen
1: than it does in the book. I trust them with each other on screen much more than I do in the book.
0: It's interesting because they quite literally filmed their audition on a bed. Like they filmed the meadow scene as their audition. And it was Kirsten Stewart who ended up fighting for Robert Pattinson. He was apparently like... (laughs) <laughs> living a bit hand to mouth he really needed this role and kirsten stewart was like we have good chemistry mm-hmm. to the extent that katherine hardock likes to tell a story about how she had to remind robert pattinson that kirsten stewart was underage at the time yeah. and you're like okay so they had good chemistry i think it does play off reasonably well on screen mm-hmm. i don't find this a romance oh god no And I think part of that is the problem for me. Like when I watch this film, I'm always more interested in the vampire stuff because Mm. I find the romance uninteresting.
1: So I find the romance uninteresting and I don't care about vampires. So.
0: So you're watching for the blue filter is what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Love me some rainy scenes.
0: I was going to say, I think the filming looks good, but that's not entirely true because I don't think Catherine Hardwick makes some great choices in some of the ways that she films this. She did opt for handheld cameras so that it feels a little bit more fluid and mobile and kind Mm. of intimate. And I think in some cases that works, but the infamous say it, say it, say it, vampire scene in the woods, like the camera is swooping around. them And I'm just like, you use this technique when you're trying to connote that there's danger or that they're being watched. And that doesn't make any sense in that scene.
1: No, I also found it slightly nauseating.
0: <laughs> oh, it's super barfy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
1: It's like playing Mario Galaxy, but you're supposed to be watching this like emotional love scene. It's very weird.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna pretend like I know what that means.
1: I very rarely get references you don't understand, so I'm gonna <laughs> video really games. This one. That's
0: a good go to if you don't want me to know. <laughs> <laughs> Referencing though that blue filter. I found it super egregious. Mm-hmm. Ten years later. Mm-hmm. This was very popular at the time. Ironically enough, in the horror genre, the saw films, which are synonymous with torture porn, they were all adopting this. And it's a bit of a creative crutch, like when you don't have as much money and you mm-hmm. can't make everything look as good. You can use the blue filter to kind of connote it kind of tone. Mm.
1: This was like emotional torture porn for me, so
0: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I find that Stewart is like fine most of the way through. I find that Pattinson is really terrible until he and Kirsten Stewart start to actually engage with one another. Like the scene where she walks into the biology room and the fan blows her hair and he has to look disgusted. Maybe some of the worst acting I've seen in a good long time.
1: It's so bad. And I had never seen the film before today. So I had read the book uh, when I was teaching it at one point, but never watched the film. Okay. Cheater. Cheater. So I had only seen those scenes in, like, animated GIFs. Oh, <laughs> And I definitely always thought that that was, like, an outtake from the film. Like, there's no way that was really in the movie. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's in there. He's very bad. Bless <clears> him. <throat> I do want to talk about this. We talked about it off the top before we started recording. But something I'm endlessly fascinated by is the way Robert Pattison has been... Roundly lauded for his disdain for Twilight, like they're mm-hmm. doing it for a paycheck.
0: Yeah, he did it to become famous and well known.
1: And like the edgy dude quality of that, that has been so celebrated for so long, versus this idea that Kristen Stewart like wasn't grateful enough for the role. I'm just I'm interested in that because ultimately I think they both hate this series. <laughs>
0: It's hard not to acknowledge what it did for them professionally, but they've also never been able to shake the perception that they're terrible actors in the way that we talk about the Star Wars prequels and how terrible Ewan McGregor and Natalie Portman are, but we also forgive them because they had demonstrated they were good actors beforehand.
1: Whereas it was a lot harder for Hayden Christensen to shake off that mantle than it was for either of them.
0: Exactly. When your sort of cultural debut into the public eye is this massive franchise, and you don't come off well in it, that ends up becoming a kind of stigma that people associate you with. Like even to this day, every time one of them gets cast in something, people will say, oh, that crappy actor from Twilight. But you're right, the difference is that Pattinson because he has so publicly disavowed the franchise and how he hates it, he gets that kind of cultural credit. Mm -hmm. And Kristen Stewart has been more political, and she has not publicly denounced it in the same way. She has distanced herself from it, but she has never really said, I hate Twilight, I hate what it did to me. Mm -hmm. And as a result, people, I think, hold it against her a lot more.
1: It's just weird because I think... Culturally, is there any space for a young woman actress to behave in the way that Robert Pattinson used to behave in the interviews around Twilight? Right, like oh, I'm not no. sure. No, of that course there not. Is like because you even think about somebody like Jennifer Lawrence, who was really good at maneuvering her way through that particular oh, yes. star narrative with Hunger Games. But even with her, it was very much like oh, she's so playful and cute in her sort of teasing mockery of this thing that's made her so famous.
0: Mm -hmm. But also then we started to hold even that against her to the point where we started to say, oh, she's now glib. Yes. Oh, shocker. Shocker, Brenna. Uh, Women are not allowed to be anything (laughs) without public criticism.
1: (laughs) It's true. It's true. (laughs) I've just always found it really interesting how much people like Pattison's attitude because, yeah, I don't think we would accept it. From a female actress in the same situation.
0: No, absolutely not. I think of even the misogyny that no one calls out around the treatment of director Catherine Hardwick, Mm -hmm. where she did the hard work, like whether or not you like this movie, she brought it to life, she set the tone, she did all of the casting decisions and so on. And then she was fired from making the second film like she wanted to make new moon which is the second entry and they were like nope we're gonna go with men yep so thanks for that and also they increased the budget for the next film did. and you could argue that it's because they realize oh okay this is now such a big thing we but can then sink you more reward the person it. who
1: made it the big thing Absolutely
0: not, right? And it's interesting because we did have this discussion around Gary Ross and what he did with The Hunger Games. So it is a similar narrative, but that is more publicly talked about. Catherine Hardwick, she also wears a part of the blame. Like, oh, you're the director of that shitty movie.
1: Yep, totally agree.
0: All this to say, I do find the film more palatable particularly as it goes on like I know a lot of people talk about the ridiculousness of the baseball scene you didn't care for it you told me offline you're like why is this in here it's so silly
1: I don't honestly don't even remember it from the movie I was making pea soup and cheese bread while I was watching the movie and the best thing about this movie was the pea soup and the cheese bread that I made (laughs) saying so i miss some things but in the book i hate that baseball scene passionately because i'm 300 pages into being done with this stupid book and then this baseball scene shows up and i was Mm -hmm. like i don't care that you're good at baseball. (laughs) plus for me it actually really heightens the troubled dynamic between edward and bella for me because it's like He's so good at everything that there's no space for her to exert any kind of agency, control, suggestion of her own power. And the baseball to me is just like, oh, great. And he's also good at sports. Okay, why yeah. not?
0: <laughs> Whereas I've, I've seen people talk about it why they don't mind it like they find it ridiculous in the film because it does look a little silly Mm -hmm. but it's also the one sort of true moment where the vampires get to show off on mass like it's not just an edward thing where he can climb a tree and jump between them it's all of them get to have their vampiric showcase which as a genre enthusiast you're like cool we're actually going to do something with the vampire element of this story because For the most part, the text is completely disinterested from engaging with any of that, except to say, oh, part of his appeal is that he's undead, he's lived forever, he could kill you at any moment. Mm, mm -hmm. So for that, you're like, oh, okay, so we get to actually see some fun stuff in the film. Mm -hmm. And also, I think it's a better prelude to what we get with James, who is terrible. Cam Gidgendet, he's super cute. He looks awful in this movie. (laughs) The ballet sequence at the end is actually kind of enjoyable to watch because we actually get action.
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes. Takes them long enough to get there, which again has to do with the source material.
0: Well, that and I think that they're trying to make this an epic, right? So we saw it with Harry Potter, where it's this faithful adaptation, we can't leave anything out, we've got to get the lion and the lamb line in there, we've got to get the mm-hmm. say it, say it, say it vampire scene in there, like we've got to do all the fan service. And that forces the film past the two hour mark when it's like, there's nothing here.
1: You know, what's interesting, I was reading about how Stephanie Meyer actually exerted a lot of control over the adaptation. Of-
0: mm-hmm. cause she had
1: multiple offers, right? And so she was able to
0: She got to pick and choose.
1: She got to pick and choose, and she got to frame what she wanted to see happen. And one of the things I find really fascinating is that there was a script developed for Paramount that sounds like gave Bella a lot more agency.
0: Hmm. And And Stephanie Meyer walked it back, right? She
1: walked it back, and the reason she went to Summit is because they were open to letting her set a whole bunch of parameters, including things like, there was a treatment of the script where Bella, one of the things that makes edward noticed bella is that she's like a track star
0: oh so she doesn't fall over all the time
1: and stephanie meyer was like absolutely not no (sighs) and i'm fascinated by that i'm fascinated by the idea that for the story to work from meyer's perspective bella can literally not be good at anything
0: (laughs) she can be good at putting herself down
1: yeah. Like what does it take away from the story to have a Bella who can maybe run fast? <laughs> like, would that be so bad?
0: I can definitely see from Meyer's perspective, well, if she can run, then she might be able to escape from James or she might be more self sufficient and that doesn't play in. But yeah, it's that's really reinforcing a lot of the issues that we've identified that we have with this text. Yeah, it's true. Yeah.
1: Hey, can we pivot and talk a little bit about the Quilliot people?
0: Yes, absolutely. So let's close out This terrible discussion with (laughs) a form of bad representation.
1: So I found through Debbie Reese, there's a whole section on American Indians and children's literature, her blog, where she links to stories about Twilight, particularly from Indigenous perspectives.
0: Nice. Okay.
1: And she links to an opinion piece that was published in the New York Times in 2010 called Sucking the Quileute Dry. Oof. Yes. And um, it's by Angela R. Riley, who directs the American Indian Studies Center at uh, University of California, Los Angeles. Okay. She's also, on an unpaid basis, she's been an advisor to the Quileute people because there's only 2,000 people in this community, right? Mm -hmm. And they ended up getting completely inundated. And one of the things that Riley points out is, like, they could have, when the film came out and people started really engaging in Twilight Tourism, they could have effectively closed their borders. They're a sovereign tribal nation. They could have closed their borders to tourists. Um, hmm. They could have really sort of limited and shut that down. And they chose not to. And what has been frustrating, I think for Riley as someone advising the group, but I'm only going to speak from her perspective in this article, because it's not written by a member of the Quillay She talks about how they've been completely left out of any negotiations. So first, There's no conversation with them by Stephanie Meyer when the book is written. Oh, of course not. But then when the film is made.
0: Honestly, like the likelihood of an author engaging in that is a little less likely. Mm -hmm. But absolutely, when they were making the film and casting actors and that kind of stuff, it's Mm -hmm. like that was the opportunity to do it.
1: Exactly. And one of the things that she points out in this article is that American intellectual property laws do not protect Indigenous people's collective cultural property. So that's why you can have a Jeep Cherokee right? Like, that's why that can exist.
0: Oh, that's garbage.
1: It is. And she points out that half of Quileute families live in poverty, even while everything from like Nordstrom's on down has been selling products with Quileute name or cultural references on it. Mm -hmm. And she writes here, That something can be done, even if there's not like legal protection, there is a moral responsibility to allow the Quilio people to have a say in and benefit financially. Now, none of this happened. Incidentally, this was published in oh, 2010. Oh, I
0: was going to say no, no. No. None of it did, though. She
1: says, going forward, the Quileute should be engaged in the Twilight phenomenon. They should be able first to welcome Ms. Meyer to the reservation and to introduce her to the tribal council and all the Quileute people. They should be consulted on projects where the Quileute name and culture are to be used to market products. And Quileute elders should be able to share with the world the true Quileute creation story in which tribal members were transformed into humans from wolves. And then she has in brackets, but not vampire fighting wolves. <laughs> (laughs) And, you know, she talks really openly about the fact that it's a remote reservation with a very small population, and their options for economic development are limited. And there are ways in which this could have been like a happy reciprocal relationship. But Meyer didn't enter into it respectfully, and then Summit didn't enter into it respectfully. And as a result, what you have instead... I'll read the conclusion. She says, the ultimate choice regarding not only the Quileute but all Indigenous peoples is not simply whether outsiders are free to appropriate tribal cultural property. For the sake of fairness, as much as for law, Indigenous peoples must play a significant role in decisions regarding their cultural property. Yeah. Later, Twilight films have been celebrated for a commitment to hiring Indigenous actors as the Quileute community becomes more central to the storytelling of the film. hmm But Taylor Lautner is not Indigenous. He has said nope. that- Yeah, he says that he traces some Indigenous ancestry, but as we've learned, for example, with the Michelle Latimer situation that we'll talk about more, that's not the same thing (laughs) as being raised within community. And that's one thing that Indigenous creatives say back to dominant representations over and over and over again. It's not enough to do a DNA test. You need to be raised within and responsible to a community if you want to tell these stories. Taylor Lautner is just another example of You know, Johnny Depp did the same thing when he was playing Tonto, right? It's this idea of, like, I have some indigenous blood. I don't feel any responsibility to any communities, but I want to silence your criticisms of me, right? Exactly. Yeah, it ends up becoming
0: lip service.
1: Yeah. So I just think it's really – it's unfortunate because, as Riley points out in this essay – There was an opportunity for this to have been more reciprocal, at least at the stage of the film, right? I think Mm -hmm. Stephanie Meyer was never particularly interested in having this conversation. No. But the filmmakers should have been. The production team should have been. And I hope, I mean, I hope that that's some difference between 2008 and now, Mm -hmm. but I'm not so sure. Uh, yeah.
0: It's something where I would echo that sentiment. Like, I would hope it'd be different. I don't know if it would be. I do think as an audience, we've matured more and we would start to expect it and maybe even demand it. But mm-hmm. whether or not it would be listened to by a studio whose inclination is to make money mm-hmm. and cut costs, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, representation and inclusion is something that's like an afterthought.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Oh, dear, Brenna. I
1: just didn't like it, Joe. And I I guess the question we never really got to, and maybe we can't ever answer it, is why is a story that is this troubled in this many different ways such a juggernaut? Mm -hmm. Why is this the story we want to sell to our teenage girls? And why is this the story our teenage girls want to buy? Yeah,
0: I don't think that there's a simple answer. And... One of the conversations that we haven't touched on is the way that the books in particular, like they were meant to evoke Gothic romances like mm-hmm. Wuthering Heights and Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can find quotes from Stephanie Meyer that she compares this to classic literature mm-hmm. as though it's in the same vein. And I. Are, I told you off the air as we were prepping for this that they ended up retconning covers of great works to look more like Twilight to capitalize on the success and almost like lure in new generations by being like, did you like Twilight? You should now read Wuthering (laughs) Heights. And I think part of that is like it speaks to the way that this is being packaged and sold in addition to the fact that this only works as a juggernaut because it didn't just appeal to teen girls, Mm -hmm. but also to moms who want an Edward of their own. And there's an entire population of people who are deeply religious and they found the abstinence and the chastity appealing because it wasn't offensive to them. So
1: also the fact that in this tiny town, literally nobody smokes or drinks. Yeah. I noticed the beer in the film Mm -hmm. because it's not in the book. No. I did text Joe before the episode today, and I was like, because typically when you read a vampire story, not that I've read a lot of them, but like, for example, in Discovery of Witches, one of the great benefits for having been alive for so long and having lived all over Europe is that the vampires know a lot about wine. Mm -hmm. I don't understand how it's possible that you would live 300 years and not develop some kind of curiosity about wine, for example. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, and honestly, the the funniest thing is the idea of making a vampire film. Like, the vampire is quintessentially the most sexualized monster yes. that we have in the canon. Because the very act of being a vampire is penetrative, sexualized biting. Yes. So having lived forever and having the opportunity to try all these different wines, as many different drugs, as many different sexual partners as you may have wanted. Like the idea that Edward has just lived 87 years of what? Yeah. Of drinking Fresca and never (laughs) getting laid. Wow. What a life.
1: I love the idea that they'll drink like a bottle of like cafeteria lemonade, but like (laughs) <laughs> why mm-hmm. never crosses their lips just cracks me right up. It's it's so ludicrous, and it's another example of why it would be useful for the text to be a little bit more upfront about its cultural in underpinnings. Right? Like, are mm-hmm. these vampires also Mormon? Right. Yeah. Let's
0: just acknowledge the fact that these are Mormon vampires and a Mormon human girl. And then all of a sudden the text becomes far, well, it's still abusive, but it's maybe less problematically so.
1: I did read uh, an essay that traced chronologically Carlyle's history against Joseph Smith's history and the development of Mormonism in America, and basically argued that Carlyle moves west alongside Mormonism as a historical development in America.
0: Huh. Mm. Wow. Mm. See, Brenna... We have crapped on this for more than an hour now, and yet Twilight really is the text that just keeps giving.
1: Oh, gosh. I just, I just want to reiterate for people that this is not a healthy relationship. Don't be in relationships with people who, I, who tell you all the time how much murdering of you they can do.
0: It's not good. <laughs> and why you should find that attractive and why you should want to be with them.
1: It's just weird. Like, I could totally kill you right now. Oh, that's super hot. No, it's not. It's not super hot. <laughs>
0: uh, okay, <laughs> right. well, I'm it home. done.
1: <laughs> yeah, me too.
0: Let's play some YA bingo.
1: Okay. Bingo. Not a good bingo.
0: What have you got?
1: Uh, Abuse. Oh, shocker. I know. Uh, magic supernatural. Mm-hmm. Forever um, Young. It's not how I meant Forever Young, but...
0: I was going to say, that's a bit of a cheat, because that's not how you planned
1: it. I do think house porn for the Cullen's home.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
1: Obviously the chosen one. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And to a certain extent, like, Bella is Edward's manic pixie dream person. I also had that, yes.
0: I've got hollow friendships and romances. To be honest, it's fitting both of those characteristics. Yeah, fair. We do have dead bodies in the film. So we're introduced to James and Victoria and Laurent quite a bit earlier. And basically the introduction is just that they murder a bunch of people as they make their way to Forks.
1: I actually find that really useful in the film because it sets up stakes that the book Mm -hmm. doesn't
0: have. Oh, 100%. Yeah. It's a good creative choice for the film.
1: I want to argue for musicality okay I was noticing that in the prom scene in particular the songs that are playing at the prom because I had my subtitles turned on mm-hmm. so I noticed that the songs were um, there was one called go all the way mm. and the lyrics of it were like basically all about like having sex on prom night and of course their <laughs> conversation through that scene is about how she wants him to turn her but he's not going to so right yeah i thought the music was actually uh, there are frequent points in the narrative actually where the music Mm -hmm. the lyrics which you only notice really if you have your subtitles turned off the lyrics are very on point at multiple points during the during the film yeah
0: i was too busy appreciating robert pattinson's guitar playing and also piano playing oh really he actually does play the guitar for a couple of tracks that ended up, I think, getting included on one of the albums. God. Yeah. I'm also going to put in perfect date for when Ooh. they have their dumb, shining, meadow, sparkly thing. I guess. And I know it's not quite accurate, but inauthentic voice because a every single character reads exactly the same yeah. in this book. Yeah. But also because we're speaking for indigenous people in yep. a just...
1: No, I think that's really fair, and I particularly agree with you. The all the non-Edward vampires are entirely interchangeable to me. And all the non-Bella High School students are entirely interchangeable to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's not on the board that I really wish was? What's that? Cameo. Uh,
0: Did you notice the author cameo? I read about it and I didn't.
1: I noticed it because it's hilariously out of place. Okay. So when they're sitting in the diner, because Bella and her dad go to the diner every night for dinner in the film version. She doesn't cook for him in the film version. Mm -hmm. The waitress says, like, a salad for you, Stephanie. And like, Mm hands Stephanie Meyer a salad. And (laughs) Stephanie Meyer, like, practically looks into the camera and winks. It's really bad. It's really bad. (laughs) Yeah. So I wish that was on the board, but it's not. Okay. Oh, and (laughs) neglect. Neglect. I think that uh, ultimately we get into the situation because Bella's mother is deeply neglectful.
0: This is fair. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So despite all of that... Yeah. We don't have a line. (laughs) Got roughly half the board, but the stars (gasps) have not aligned.
1: Oh, this is just another way this movie sucks. (laughs) Give us the damn line. Oh, Lord. All right. So... If you want to tell us that Twilight is hashtag good, actually, you can find us on the Twitters at hkhspod. Yes, that's right. That's our shiny new Twitter handle. Ooh. We're also still following the hashtag hkhspod. And you can email us any of your longer fan fiction.
0: No, absolutely not.
1: hkhspod at gmail.com.
0: Let's be real. We've already read the fan fiction <laughs> because we've read after
1: so true it's so true kind of wish we had done after after this one now after 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 (laughs) uh joe if they want to yell at you specifically because
0: i don't know why i don't know why come at me bras (laughs) i am at b stole my remote and that's the letter b
1: and i am at brenna c gray that's gray with an a and i don't want to hear that you think twilight is great because i'll just make me mad um yeah next week we launch our book club
0: yes Mm -hmm.
1: so if you haven't yet picked up the house on mango street by sandra cisneros i hope that you will and i hope you'll read along with us it's very short if you picked it up this week you could still get it read in time for next week's episode
0: hmm. Yeah. And what we're going to invite people to do is feel free to tweet reactions to yes. us using that official handle, mm-hmm. or uh, send us an email with your thoughts. And we will try to find some way to either get them onto that episode, or the subsequent episode. Because Brenna, what is our next full length book, which accompanies the house on Mango Street?
1: That will be A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. We're returning to actual classics, not mm-hmm. Stephanie Meyer classics. Yeah.
0: So part of this is, as we mentioned, when we introduced the book club, we're reading books that will correspond to main feed episodes. Mm -hmm. So these two books we're hoping to discuss in a kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. But obviously, for the purposes of book club, we'd love to hear how you're finding the book. If you've read it before, like tell us all about your experiences with The House on Mango Street.
1: Yes, absolutely. I'm really excited to get into it and I'm excited to read it alongside Triggers in Bookland because they're often recommended as complimentary texts for teachers who are trying to diversify reading lists. So mm-hmm. looking forward to it. Yeah. All right, folks. So until next time, if you have forgiven us for this episode, I will <laughs> see you on the page.
0: And I will see you on the screen.
1: Bye bye.
0: Bye! Bella forever.